Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I've got a question for you today. Hit me. In your opinion, what is the creepiest image photograph produced by human space exploration? Hmm. Well, since we're, we're talking about exploration, I imagine this rules out weapons tests. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not interested in yeah. nuclear bombs. Yeah, because we have some pretty creepy uh, <laughs> uh, new test footage, such as uh, 1960s Operation uh, uh, Dominique, uh, which involved uh, atmospheric uh, sort of slash space detonation of nukes. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, for instance, there was uh, the Starfish Prime event in which a 1.4 megaton bomb detonated 250 miles or 402 kilometers above the planet. Planet, and that's above the uh, the Carmen line, uh, so uh, like that's pretty disturbing when you when you think about it, like a Cold War uh, space detonation test. But as far as like pure space exploration goes, uh, I'm always a sucker for stuff like the you know the so-called Martian face, or even something like the the hexagon of Saturn. Something oh, that just inspires one. this sense of mystery where you're asking like what. What is this place really? Oh, the hexagon on the – I believe it's the north pole of Saturn. It's mm-hmm. either the north or the south pole. I can't recall I believe which it, one. I believe it's north. We, we talked about it in one of our uh, previous episodes. A haunted geography and a haunted geometry. Hmm. Very Lovecraftian. Yeah, I guess there are forbidden geometries all through the Lovecraft cosmos, right? You know it. But I've got a different answer. My – and for a long time this has been my answer. My favorite creepy space images – have got to be the photos taken by the Venera 13 lander. Robert, uh, I've got them in the notes here, but had you ever looked at these before? Yes. I, you know, I'm not sure I'd seen the color-corrected ones, but mm-hmm. uh, but certainly I'd seen the the the, uh, the other ones that have that, that deep kind of reddish-orange tinge to them. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to try to explain what's disturbing about them because they're just pictures of some rocks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just you're you're looking at some rocks and soil. Now, what the Venera landers were, it was a series of space missions to the planet Venus that was uh, done by the Soviet space program. They they launched these uh, missions to put landers down on the surface of Venus for the first time. There hadn't been landers sending things back from Venus uh, or the surface of Venus before this, but they sent a bunch of missions in the 70s and the 80s. And one of the things about landing on Venus, and we'll definitely get more into this in the episode, is that you've got a very short window of time to send stuff back because Venus is a death trap. Yeah, it will destroy you. Yeah, even for highly shielded, powerful machines, you put a machine down there and it's a suicide mission. The machine's going to gather some data and transmit as long long as it can, but eventually the crushing heat and pressure of the atmosphere of Venus will kill that robot and it, it will only have this last sort of death note to send back to Earth. And one of these missions managed to send some really striking pictures as that last death note. Specifically, it was the Venera 13 lander, which was launched on October 30th, 1981, and it landed on Venus on March 1st, 1982. So even the idea of a lander setting down on Venus, if you know anything about the Venusian atmosphere, is kind of creepy to imagine because first you're going in to this haze of sulfurous clouds. But as you go further and further down, the atmospheric pressure gets so much and so dense and so thick that it's almost more like sinking into a liquid. Yeah. Uh, and so you got to imagine this lander sinking down into this atmospheric ocean surrounding Venus, this 
boiling hot, lead melting atmospheric ocean of, of carbon dioxide and nitrogen with all this sulfur everywhere. And then finally it sets down on the surface and takes these images and sends them back to Earth. And there's almost nothing in the images. You just see the edge of the lander in the foreground and it has some appropriately creepy looking triangular teeth all around it. And then beyond that, there's some soil and some flat rocks. But nevertheless, something about these images messes with me. I find them absolutely creepy and haunting. They have this dirty grindhouse kind of yellow film effect to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, of course, the atmospheric effects that we see from, from the glow of Venus. Uh, it's almost as if we're looking at everything through an evil haze. For me, I think it's because it's, the, it's like the last known photograph uh, from uh, <laughs> from from the from the very uh, you know borders of of the known world. Yeah, um, it, it's like if somebody went to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house mm-hmm. and took a picture of their feet by accident, and then that's all you had to go on. Right. You know, you, you know something <laughs> terrible happened afterwards. You don't have a lot of details, but you have this picture of somebody's feet on a front porch in Texas. That's exactly right. Yeah, it feels like that. And another creepy thing about them is that. You notice a difference that unlike Mars, where if you see images back from the surface of Mars, they can sometimes look kind of creepy, but it can also just look kind of like, uh, I don't know, a desert on kind of an overcast day Mm -hmm. uh, with just a very barren area with sand and rocks and kind of a gray-white sky. But unlike on Mars, one thing you'll notice is the effects of sunlight and the directionality of the sunlight where if there's a thing sticking out of the rover, you can see it casting a shadow on the ground. Mm -hmm. These – these pictures have no indication of shadows, really. Hmm. You know, looking at them uh, again as we podcast here, I, I do think there is a sense of one taking a picture of one's own feet here. So there's an incompleteness to it. You mm-hmm. know, it's that it just it just gets at you. Whereas at least with the, with the Mars images, we have more of a true, uh, you know, panoramic uh, vision of what's going on there. Well, Mars has been thoroughly explored mm-hmm. on the surface at this point. I mean, we have all kinds of pictures of what Mars looks like at different times of day, different times of the year, you know, from multiple different landers and rovers. Mars almost feels like, I don't mean to poo-poo Mars. I mean, Mars is still fascinating and mysterious and wonderful, but it's it's very much more explored territory at this point. Yeah, we know, as we've mentioned before, we have more detailed information about the surface of Mars than we have about the bottom of the ocean. In some ways, that is definitely mm-hmm. true. Um, but the surface of Venus is like, it's this mystery hell, you know? It's this hazy mystery that's beyond the gate. And because it feels like this hazy mystery that's beyond the gate, for some reason the idea of life on Venus has always seemed more creepy and interesting and tantalizing a possibility to me than the idea of life on Mars. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I I definitely think so. I think it's kind of a shame that Venus doesn't get more attention, uh, especially in in terms of our, our science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you think of life on another planet within our solar system, you think of really the, the rich history of imagining life on Mars, both in the future and the past. Uh, because you have everything from, of course, the old uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs novels to mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to Total Recall. I mean, you, you have so, <laughs> just, there's, there's so much great stuff there. But when you start looking for really cool examples of life on Venus, there are some great examples – uh, but there there aren't as many. It's not it, it's not the place that the human imagination instantly goes to. But as we'll discuss in this episode, we really should because there's a there there are some strong cases to be made for life on Venus either now or in the past. Yeah, and so that's going to be the main subject of today's episode. If there are or if there have been creatures of Venus 
what are they like and how would we know about them? Now, if we just turn to fiction for a few examples, uh, we don't have time to catalog everything, but I wanted to mention a few that uh, that came to, to my mind anyway. There is uh, an H.P. Lovecraft story uh, from 1939 that he wrote with Kenneth Sterling titled In the Walls of Eryx, which features a muddy jungle Venus uh, and a maze with invisible walls. Oh, that feels about right. Yeah. It's pretty good. I remember I remember digging that story when I read it. Uh, C.S. Lewis took us to uh, a Venusian paradise in his novel Paralandra. Uh, this involves uh, an alien, Adam and Eve, and, there, and then, of course, you have the devil show up as well, possessing the body of uh, a character by the name of Professor Weston. Professor Weston. I wonder if that's named after Jesse Weston, uh, who wrote the book about the Grail legend that was so popular in the early 20th century. Hmm. I, you know, I don't, I don't remember. Uh, but... Uh, but it's a uh, Paralandra was was a book I really uh, loved when I was younger, and we'll probably read again at some at some point. Oh, I've never read it, but that seems interesting to explore, especially because you've got I mean you've got multiple mythic associations with Venus throughout history. You know, you've got the god of love and the Eros and the Venus uh, mm-hmm. Aphrodite kind of association, but you've also got the Lucifer association. Yeah, yeah, and both are explored in Paralandra. Uh, per, per, in Paralandra, Venus is also a water world, oh. and they're like these kind of floating rafts of land that everyone is uh, – well, everyone, it's like three or four people, uh-huh. uh, three or four individuals anyway that live there. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it is a, an interesting take on Venus as well. Stephen King uh, took us to Venus twice uh, as it turns out, uh, once in a 1960s self-published short story titled The Cursed Expedition, which I have not read. I'm not sure that's one that's actually readily available or it's kind of like a – you know, a vault story of Kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, there's, of course, his 1971 short story, I Am the Doorway, which doesn't actually visit the planet, but a character is uh, takes part in a manned Venus flyby uh-huh. and comes back uh, in essentially infected with an alien organism. Well, it's interesting to think about that this is a time period at which the Venera missions were underway. Yeah. There's also a similar Outer Limits episode from 1964 titled Cold Hands, Warm Heart uh, that actually stars uh, William Shatner. Oh, what, yeah. so Shat goes to Venus or he's from Venus or what? Uh, I haven't seen this episode, but he is involved in some sort of space mission involving Venus. Okay. Yes. So you can't give me the deets on the Shat. <laughs> uh, I mean, things go, uh, you know, weird. That's, uh-huh. that's the, the, again, <laughs> this is not an Outer uh, Limits episode that I've seen, uh, but perhaps we have listeners who can chime in on it. Uh, and then, of course, Venus plays an important role in The Expanse, a uh, TV series uh, uh, adaptation of the, the, the novels. Uh, no spoilers, but it, it does have a pretty cool plot line involving life and Venus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also early mention uh, uh, in the, the books and perhaps the TV series as well about a failed attempt by humans to establish cloud colonies there. Oh, yeah, that is an interesting idea I've read about, the idea of trying to create um – I don't know whether you call them aerostatic or hydrostatic, uh, basically floating colonies uh, that would be not too hard to do actually because of how dense the atmosphere is. Yeah. It's a cloud city right out of uh, Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Except, I don't know, Bespin didn't look all that cloudy compared to Venus. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were up there, right? Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen Empire, so I don't remember how cloudy it was. Or if it became more cloudy in the uh, special editions that came out. Who knows? Oh, yeah. They really CG'd some more clouds in there. It's, uh, it was worth it. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, no, I think it's interesting that Venus doesn't get as much attention as Mars does in terms of the possibility of finding microbial life forms. I mean, you know, way back in the day, people used to think before we'd explored Mars that, there, you know, there might be whole civilizations there. People would look through telescopes and see what looked like canals on Mars and they'd say, oh, you know, there, there are people on Mars just like there are people here. Now we pretty much can rule that out. I wonder if part of it is because we went from – being so geocentric, the idea that the the Earth is the center of all things, mm-hmm. and then we went to a, a, a heliocentric model, mm-hmm. and then of course we expanded beyond that. But if if we're still kind of thinking heliocentrically, so the Sun is the center of of our solar system, mm-hmm. and therefore it's kind of a center of order and and the known. And this is not doesn't something not not something that actually matches up necessarily with our our scientific understanding of everything. But it is it is a center, and mm-hmm. therefore Venus is closer to the center. It's closer to the center of the known, whereas Mars is a little beyond us. Like Mars is is a little more on the outskirts, and therefore it makes us more it makes more sense that it would have more mystery to it. That's where the that's where the ghosts and goblins are going to live, right? They're not going to live in the middle of the city. They're going to live uh, on the outskirts of town. Well, yeah, it's the outer limits. You don't talk about the inner limits. The inner limits. <laughs> Though I do really enjoy science fiction that that goes inward instead of goes mm-hmm. outward. Actually, I mean, this is something I really liked about that movie Sunshine that came out. Oh yeah, uh, which uh, you know had a lot of problems. I think some of the writing kind of fell apart in the third part of the movie, but it explored the idea that there was this deep kind of uh, ghostly mystery to the sun. And as you come closer and closer to the sun, it sort of activates these instincts within you that are sort of borderline supernatural, but at least seem to go deeper than the human or mammalian parts of your nervous system. You know, the sun is the closest thing to a literal god there is in the physical universe, right? It's the creator of us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that, yeah, coupled with the fact that humans just want to keep going out. It's one of the reasons probably that more people have been to the moon than to the bottom of – than to the deepest portions of the ocean. Well, I think we should ignore this impulse to go out and we should go in. Let's go in toward Venus, get closer to the sun, move one orbit in and start looking at this uh, hothouse planet. Yeah, why go to a planet that doesn't have enough atmosphere when instead you can take your, your dreams and your imagination to a place that has more atmosphere than you can handle? Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will explore the surface of Venus. All right, we're back. Now, you're probably familiar with some of the most basic features of Venus as a planet, right? That it's very much known as an Earth analog, and that is a fair way to characterize it. It's very close to the size and mass of the Earth. It's going to, you know, it was created around the same time in the accretion disk of the inner rocky planets. Um, So in many ways, it is a lot like the Earth until you get down into the atmosphere. So, Robert, can you take me on a tour of the surface of Venus? Yeah, I actually chatted with astrobiologist David uh, Grinspoon about the surface of Venus several years back, uh, as well as with JPL scientist Suzanne uh, Smrikar. So I want to run through some of the the attributes of the planet here that they stressed to me. All right, let's take a a stroll through the toxic soup. All right, so uh, so Grinspoon pointed out that first and foremost, this is a a planet that's very rich in volcanoes and mountains and tectonic features. Mm -hmm. Now, not to be confused with tectonic activity, We'll get back to that. Uh, you won't find signs of uh, water erosion, uh, pro- probably, unless they're very, very ancient. And a lot of the topography is dominated by a sort of a low-lying rolling plains that are largely ash. Hmm. 
And this is punctuated by some high volcanic mountains and uh, some other sort of uh, high plateaus of uh, titanically disrupted areas uh, uh, with, with flows of ash. So this is a planet surface that has been sort of like uh, hit and paved by volcanic activity. Yes, yeah. Uh, there uh, Also, he says there are seemingly steady, slow winds always blowing east to west. And uh, as we've already touched on, the atmospheric pressure is very high. Now, one interesting thing about the directionality of the uh, movement of the atmosphere there is that Venus rotates opposite of the way that most of the planets in our solar system rotate. It rotates in a retrograde way to its orbit. So the sun actually rises in the west and sets in the east on Venus. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It has, also has an extremely slow rotation, yeah. uh, 243 terrestrial days. That's how long it, it takes. Uh, but its atmosphere only needs four days to ra- to rotate. Okay. So, yeah, there, there's already you can tell there's a lot of a lot of by the from a terrestrial standpoint, a lot of screwy things going on with Venus. Mm-hmm. If you were approaching the this is like approaching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house and finding all sorts of uh, bone uh, based uh, you know voodoo doodads uh, hanging in trees and bushes. Right, some skull furniture. Yeah. <laughs> So the pressure is high, uh, roughly 90 times the pressure of, uh, at sea level on Earth. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Of, co- of course, it's going to vary, though, depending on you know exactly what altitude you're at uh-huh. on Venus. Uh, we've already touched on the light a little bit. You'd find very dull light. Uh, Grinspoon says that if you were suddenly transported to Venus, you would notice that the, the, the light is very different. It's always cloudy, and there's a, a very thick... Uh, uh, the very thick atmosphere, so uh, light is, he says, is, is kind of diffused and gathered. So so much that it's uh, it's kind of reddish, and there are, as you said, no shadows because there's no direct sunlight. It's all just clouds and scattered light. He says that there would be enough daylight to see, but it will be like a heavily overcast day on Earth. And of course, on the night side, it would be dark. Aside from whatever kind of like the, you, you would probably notice the dull red glow of the the red hot rocks in the ground lighting things a bit. Creepy. And uh, he, he pointed out that it is pretty much Earth's alter ego. It's the only Earth-sized planet uh, in our solar system. Only uh, the only other uh, roughly Earth-sized planet uh, that we can send a spacecraft to and study in detail. Uh, that will, and, and that's going to be true for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, indeed, Earth and Venus probably had similar origins. Uh, it, it could have been in, in, they could have been in nearly identical states uh, in in the beginning, and yet we have gone down very different uh, uh, routes in terms of how our climates and surface conditions have turned out. So yeah, if we started in similar states, what happened to, to Venus to make it so different from us? Well, runaway greenhouse effect. Uh, boiled away the oceans long ago, uh, and they were lost to space, and then it, uh, it became essentially stuck with its present climate. It's, it, it, it's often touted as kind of a worst-case example of what climate change on Earth could amount to. Yeah. Now, you might have heard of this idea of the runaway greenhouse effect uh, invoked, but if you're wondering exactly how that works, basically what happens is you've got some liquid on the surface of your planet. You've got, like, say, liquid water oceans. Mm-hmm. And if you heat the oceans up too much, they begin to evaporate evaporate a lot of water vapor into the atmosphere. But of course, water vapor is an excellent greenhouse gas. 
And then when there's a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere, because it's a greenhouse gas, sunlight can pass through it one way, coming in to heat the earth or heat the planet. But then it does not allow as much energy to reflect back off of the planet and radiate back out into space. So like other greenhouse gases, this water vapor lets energy in but not back out. And this warms the planet even more. As the planet warms, the water vapor just keeps evaporating even more because it's getting hotter and hotter, making the effect worse and worse in this net positive feedback loop. So there are sort of these tipping points for planets with liquid on the surface. You don't want to get the water hotter than a certain level because if you do, it's just going to create this runaway effect that you kind of can't stop. Now, I mentioned um, plate tectonics earlier. There are no plate tectonics that we know of on Venus, uh, but certainly there's a lot of uh, volcanic activity. The volcanoes, though, don't spring up along plate borders like they do on Earth. They just pop up all over. Uh, So So there's just kind of a surprise volcano. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's a different pattern of uh, convection, uh, or so it seems, according to Grinspoon. Now, in addition to the the greenhouse uh, gas issue, he did drive home that a lot of the differences may also just be due to orbit. You know, obviously, uh, Venus is uh, more of an inner planet than Earth. Right. And, uh, and there are just going to be uh, certain differences in place just on where you are uh, in relation to the sun. Right. So it is closer to the sun than us. But that's that's not the only thing that plays a role because, for example, the surface of Venus is hotter than the surface of Mercury, which mm-hmm. is closer to the sun than Venus is. Uh, so it, it definitely the atmosphere plays a huge role in what surface conditions are like. Right. And uh, we already hit on the fact that the the atmosphere of Venus is pretty incredible. Uh, The clouds of Venus uh, are concentrated sulfuric acid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, that's not to say that the atmosphere is concentrated sulfuric acid. The atmosphere mm-hmm. is about 98.5 carbon dioxide. Right. Yes. 98.5% carbon dioxide with like uh, 3.5% nitrogen or so. And then it's got these aerosolized uh, sulfuric acid particles, like colloidal sulfuric acid suspended in the atmosphere. Needless to say, you wouldn't want to breathe it. Now, did we, we touch on exactly how hot the surface is? I'm not sure we did. That's worth mentioning because yeah. it's 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 hotter than you think, Dad. Hotter <laughs> than you think. Yeah, uh, Suzanne Sprikar uh, pointed out that the surface temperature is around 900 degrees Fahrenheit or 482 Celsius. That is it, it's a, an often cited fact, hot enough to melt lead. Uh, this, these are almost like metalworks kind of conditions. Yeah, and another cool thing that she pointed out is like, okay, assume you're on the, pr- on the surface. You're wearing some sort of high-tech suit that, that prevents you from having to worry about uh, melting mm-hmm. or being crushed. Uh, and she, she points out that walking on the surface would be really weird because it would be like walking – be more like walking through a fluid than what we think of as as an atmosphere. Yeah, and this is again due to that high pressure, supercritical CO two. Uh, so, in some aspects, uh, some aspects of a fluid would be present, uh, as well as some aspects of a gas. I wonder if that atmospheric density is part of what contributes to the creepiness of those photos taken by the Venera thirteen lander. I I don't know. Like, is that cueing something in my eyes? Does somehow the air look wrong? Like it looks heavier or yeah. something? Yeah. I wonder. Now, Smrikar also pointed out that uh, one of the biggest mysteries uh, about Venus is why it doesn't have plate tectonics. Uh, And uh, she says that the planet completely resurfaced sometime in the last billion years. And so we have no record of what happened in those first three and a half billion years. 
Now, this is premised on the fact that Venus is basically the same age as the Earth, that they were created in this planetary accretion process, and both planets are about four and a half billion years old. But something happened about a billion years ago on Venus that resurfaced most of it uh, and hid the evidence. They, they were like, we got to get this redone. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sick of this old pattern. We got to get it repaved. <laughs> But she pointed out that we really don't know if it, if it was some sort of uh, catastrophic event that caused uh, a huge amount of, uh, of, of volcanic activity uh, to, rec- to made it occur within a relatively short period of time or if it's just been a steady process over the last billion years where uh, volcanic activity has just been ac- accumulating. Now, one of the things we often talk about when considering whether or not a planet can sustain life is what the sort of uh, the, the geomagnetic properties of the planet are. Now, we know that Venus does have an iron core like Earth does, but the question is if it's going to sustain life on its surface or within its atmosphere, does it have a magnetic field to shield it from radiation coming from space? Well, yeah, the answer here is really interesting because, no, it does not have an internally generated magnetosphere. Uh, The solar wind can slam directly into the atmosphere. However, it does benefit from partial protection due to its induced magnetic field. Now, what's that? So you have solar ultraviolet radiation removing electrons from atoms in the upper atmosphere, uh, creating the electrically charged gas of the ionosphere. As on Earth, it slows and uh, diverts the flow of particles around the planet. Oh, now that's interesting. But so far, I guess we should say we've just been sort of talking about the planet in general and kind of uh, spitballing about what life mm-hmm. there could be like or, or you know, uh, things that occur to us. What do the experts actually have to say about the possibility of life on Venus either in the past or now? I mean, it's hard to imagine life on the surface of Venus now given how hot and high pressure it is. But let's not prejudge the question. What 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 would, for example, uh, David Grinspoon have to say about life on Venus? Well, he's very clear about the, the, the fact that there's nothing controversial at all about speculating uh, that – that ancient Venus might have boasted life. Because mm-hmm. uh, he says if you go back 4 billion years, you'll find an environment very similar to Earth. Yeah. And so much of our speculations uh, re- regarding life on other worlds, you know, it, it centers around the question, how much like Earth is it or was it? Yeah. Now, of course, that's premised on the fact that we basically know of one way biochemistry can work, and that has certain physical tolerances built into it. Biochemistry can work in a carbon-based way with water as a solvent, and so we know that can only happen in a place where there's the right kind of temperature to have liquid water, where it doesn't freeze or boil, um, and you've got, you know, you've got the right kind of organic molecules present. So that sets these tolerances there. But then again, there are other ways we maybe aren't even imagining that biochemistry could work just don't, based on our limited imagination. But still, based on what we know, you, you, there, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, life could have existed on Venus. Yeah, I mean, you, you know a place like Earth can have life. Right. And, and Grinspoon uh, says it's even conceivable that life could have begun on Venus and that we're all essentially Venusians. Uh, you know, he points out that you have rocks being blasted between the planets, uh, so there was contact. So some form of panspermia is possible, mm-hmm. uh, possible. Uh, concerning uh, life on Earth and possible life on Venus. Now, that's something people bring up as a possibility, but not to say that there's a strong reason to favor that hypothesis. Right. Now, some of our, really, a lot of the the key theories regarding life on Venus do, uh, in the past, revolve around the idea that there may have been oceans there in the past. Right. And we still don't have definitive proof, I think, that there were oceans on Venus in the past, but there's 
there are pretty strong reasons to think that it at least might have had oceans. I was looking at one study by Arnaud Salvador et al. Uh, from the Journal of Geophysical Research, Planets, in 2017. And this was kind of interesting. So the background on the study is that they talk about how early in the history of a solar system, you've got young inner planets and they get bombarded by lots of impacts from rocky objects orbiting the sun, right? The early, the early solar system is very dirty and it's very full of stuff. And over long periods of time, eventually it gets kind of cleaned up. But early in the solar system, you've got big rocks slamming into young planets and they slam into them from space and can actually heat planets up a lot. And big enough impacts can even melt large portions of the mass of the planet, which surrounds it in this ocean of melted rock. But after this happens, the molten ocean cools and then releases volatile compounds to create the atmosphere. And in this study, the authors create a model where they can sort of play with model planets in this state, right? You've got uh, model planets in early stages of formation that are releasing certain amounts of CO2 or water onto their surface. And that's affecting, you know, what whether it has oceans or what the atmosphere looks like. And so that you can place a model planet like that in orbit at different distances from a host star and then predict what kind of surface the planet will evolve in its geohistory. And their model suggests based on what we know about Venus today, that it could have had water oceans earlier in its history. It's consistent with what they've found. Now, the presence of uh, some sort of an alien Adam and Eve, that there's no proof for that. <laughs> right. We just have to leave that to C.S. Lewis. Even though it might be hard to know for sure whether there was life on Venus a long time ago, we can at least get good clues about whether there would have been uh, windows of opportunity for it, right? Yeah, yeah. According to uh, Sanjay Lime and co-authors uh, in a 2018 astrobiology paper, Venus could have boasted a habitable climate and liquid water for as long as 2 billion years. That's 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 longer than it might have occurred on Mars. So you have a pretty uh, pretty long uh, period of time there. Uh, that is enough time, based on our our terrestrial model, for uh, at least simple life to emerge. Yeah. Now, if you look at that period of time on Earth, you're not really getting beyond single-celled organisms. Yeah, I mean, to put that in perspective, two billion years of life on Earth was enough to get us from the deep sea vent life to uh, single celled life, you know, able to get us to photosynthesis and uh, atmospheric oxygen. But you'd need another 1.5 billion years of Earth life to get uh, to like multicellular life and sexual reproduction. So, was there, based on the Earth model, was there life on Venus? Maybe. Was there sex on Venus? Probably not. Oh, but maybe, maybe. Okay, imagine on Venus for some reason life evolves faster. Yeah. Maybe there's maybe there's a faster mutation rate, something like that. I want to by the end of this episode, I want to be imagining what it could have been like if there was fully evolved intelligent civilization on <laughs> Venus that is now just paved over by volcanic activity and we can't see any trace of it. Well, it would be a shame, wouldn't it, uh, that the planet name for the goddess of love. Uh, would have never known sexual reproduction. It was just all uh, you know, asexual. That would be a cruel irony. <laughs> well, anyway, so we've been exploring this question of whether it, whether life could have existed on Venus in the past, but we should transition to talk about whether life exists on Venus today. Yeah, because this is where we really get into the um, uh, the, the, the imagination uh, capturing aspects of of, uh, of exploring Venus. The idea that we could send something there, some sort of probe 
and discover life, like actually harness and study an example of of life on another world. Now, you're probably thinking, now, wait a second. Earlier, didn't you say that the surface of Venus had 90 times the pressure of Earth's atmosphere at the surface and was like 500 degrees Celsius or like 900 degrees Fahrenheit? So you may be thinking skeptically, you're not suggesting that life exists on the surface of Venus, or are you? Well, not on the surface. We've got to get our heads in the clouds. That's where things become more tolerable, at least in terms of modern Venus. All right. We will explore that when we come back from this break. All right. We're back. We've been talking about uh, the conditions on Venus as we know them today, uh, conditions on Venus uh, in the ancient past. And uh, the big question, was there life on Venus and is there life on Venus? So we've speculated on the possibility that there could have been life in, on Venus in its ancient o- oceans, mm-hmm. should, if they existed. Uh, but when we look at the planet today, the, the surface, again, is just a, a, an intolerable hellscape. But when we get up into the clouds, that's where we start seeing uh, uh, conditions that make sense for life as we know it. Now, to be fair to the surface of Venus, of course, the surface of Venus, like the surface of Earth, is not exactly the same from equator to pole, right? Yeah. It, it, in fact, it has been proposed that Venus might boast uh, acidic polar seas. Back in 1970, Joseph Seckbach and W.F. Libby suggested that uh, photosynthetic life could exist in such an environment based on experiments with algae grown in pure CO2 under pressure with an acidic nutrient medium at elevated temperatures. And, I mean, we've seen extremophile organisms on Earth that survive in in highly pressurized uh, environments, in very, very hot mm-hmm. environments that live in, say, geysers or around geothermal vents. You know, th- these are conditions of life that us surface-dwelling landlubbers can't really imagine. But certain single-celled organisms or simpler life forms have evolved to specialize in these types of extreme conditions. They're usually called extremophiles. Now, we don't know if that's actually possible on the surface of Venus. I mean, the surface of Venus is maybe too extreme for even the most extreme extremophile you can imagine. But the tolerances of life, if you expand your definition of life, go far beyond what you might imagine just looking at the life forms that inhabit your nearby forest or looking into a tide pool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly when you start looking at at deep hydrothermal vent uh, uh, environments, you start looking at the the, the creatures that that thrive there, uh, it does shift your expectations a little. And then also when you get outside of – because when you look at those vents, I think one of the things about deep hydrothermal uh, vent environments that is really captivating is you get to see things like uh, the Hoff crab. You know, the, the, the it's not really a, a crab; it's more a variety of lobster. But these pale crustaceans that uh, that swarm around these vents, um, like that, captures our imagination because we can say we can look at that and we can say, okay, it's a crab; it's an animal. Uh, I can I can relate to that more. Uh, but when you're just breaking it down to uh, to to, uh, to microbes and simpler life forms, then it's. Um, it, it, it's it's life, but it's not the it's not the kind of of life that we necessarily dream about discovering on other worlds. I'm sorry, I haven't heard your last couple sentences, Robert, because you got me googling hoff crabs. Oh yeah, the hoff crabs are incredible. They're these like squat uh, little lobster creatures. It looks like a mountain of skulls. <laughs> they do. It's like uh, <laughs> on a mountain of skulls in the castle of pain. I sat on a throne of blood. Yeah, basically, they're they're. Uh, for, if you look up pictures of these guys, they're jockeying position. Uh, for, they're jockeying for position in order to get closest to uh, the the superheated water. 
uh, because that's where they're going to find uh, um, uh, the little critters that they eat. This is crazy. I've never seen that. Well, anyway, I'm sorry. But yes, yes, I should acknowledge your point. The more willing we are to think of organisms less and less inherently like us, the the, the farther out into the extremes of, of physics and of nature that life can extend. Yeah. As I said earlier, we really have to look at the clouds. Mm-hmm. The, the the atmosphere of Venus. That is where you can get away from those hellish surface conditions and you encounter uh, conditions that are, are far more in line uh, with what we typically think of as, as uh, life-sustaining conditions. Mm-hmm. Grinspoon has written a, a number of papers on this. He points out that there are pockets of Venus that you, quote, can't completely rule out as habitats for life based on what we know. And in particular, the clouds of Venus are really interesting environments because unlike the surface, they are not particularly hot and they are a uh, continuous and sort of chemically and energetically lively environment in terms of uh, the sort of uh, uh, availability of possible nutrients and availability of energy sources and liquid media and the biogenic uh, elements. And he also pointed out, this is this I found super interesting, in his uh, 1997 book, Venus Revealed, he proposed that uh, a photosynthetic pigment may serve as the, quote, unknown ultraviolet absorber. Uh, and this is, uh, this is what may represent one of four possible signs of life uh, on Venus, along with uh, absorption of solar energy by microorganisms as a driving force for super rotation, the presence of larger and irregularly shaped cloud particles that may be quote-unquote creatures, and the presence of, of bright radar signatures on the mountaintops, which may be covered with life. So that's another thing to keep in mind when you're talking about the hellish surface of Venus. Uh, there are, there are uh, uh, peaks. There yeah. are places that are going to be, be elevated from, the, uh, uh, from the, the, the truly like pressure cooker environment that you find, find uh, uh, lower down. Absolutely. And I think in your uh, talk with uh, Suzanne Smirkar, she also uh, mentioned that the cloud environments of Venus could host microbes, right? Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing is this isn't crazy. Like we don't often stop to consider this, but here on Earth – Life is actually not confined strictly to the surface of the planet and the water that's beneath the oceans. You know, of course, we know we've got flying birds and so forth. But but there's plenty of evidence that if you were to fly up, up into the clouds and sort of take a bite out of a cloud, you would probably end up with some life forms in your mouth. Yeah, breathe deep. Yeah, dirty clouds. (laughs) Uh, There's a great article by Leslie Evans Ogden called Life in the Clouds in the October 2014 issue of Bioscience. Uh, This is a fun read, and it talks about clouds full of uh, bacterium called Pseudomonas syringae. It's bacteria that that seem to float up into the clouds and perhaps spur ice nucleation, which gives them enough weight to come falling back down to the surface. And the article discusses the idea that microorganisms living in clouds might play a major role in weather and rain cycles on Earth. And this is known as the bioprecipitation theory. Yeah, people often forget that when you're dealing with drops of precipitation, uh, uh, rain, snow, frost, etc., it it has to form around something. It Mm -hmm. has to condense around something. Uh, There has to be a starting point. Point. And that point uh, can be uh, a microbe. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And so it, it's obviously the case that with very light microbes, they can tend to be buoyant within the atmosphere, like a, a turbulent air current can churn up a bunch of dust that has microbes living within it. Right. And that can get sent up into the atmosphere. And suddenly you are a microorganism that is miles above the ground and you're up here in the cloud. How are you going to get back down to a place that's better for you in terms of 
reproduction because the upper atmosphere of Earth is probably not a good home for microorganisms on a permanent basis, right? Mm -hmm. High up in the atmosphere, it's often very cold. It can be very dry. You can get desiccated if you're a cellular organism uh, that needs liquid water. And there's exposure to high levels of UV radiation from the sun, which of course can burn your life away. But it's a great pl- way to get from one place to the other, right? It's kind of like when humans uh, uh, fly up in- into the upper atmosphere. It's 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 about getting from one p- point on the surface to another point on the surface. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. It's been sort of hypothesized that what if air currents, like the jet stream, in a way, could mm-hmm. could function to transport interesting bacterial mutations from one population of of bacteria somewhere to another, sort of like a gene conveyor belt. Yeah. But even if it is useful for uh, for the genetic diversity of a bacterial population around the world like that, microorganisms that travel in the Earth's clouds don't generally want to live there forever. But Venus's atmosphere is actually not the same as Earth's, as we've been discussing. And despite how hostile Venus is in many ways, Venus's atmosphere might be a better place for organisms than Earth's atmosphere. Uh, Organisms that might dwell within it, of course, are also different from the organisms that live on Earth and might make their living in a different biochemical way. So, Robert, you mentioned a paper earlier by Sanjay Lamea et al., the one that's in uh, astrobiology this year in 2018. And that the earlier thing that we talked about from that paper was the conclusion that Venus might have had oceans for two billion years, mm-hmm. which would give plenty of time for organisms to possibly evolve there. But the authors of this paper also talk about the possibility that there are organisms living in the clouds of Venus today, just like uh, Grinspoon was talking about. So the authors note that there are lots of good reasons to look for life forms in the lower cloud layer of Venus, which is about 47.5 to 50.5 kilometers from the surface. Now, if you look at this layer of the atmosphere – It's got very moderate temperatures, roughly 60 degrees Celsius, which is about 140 degrees Fahrenheit. It's got moderate pressure. It's like one Earth atmosphere, roughly. Mm -hmm. It's got moderate radiation exposure. They write that the UV levels in the uh, upper atmosphere of Venus are probably similar to the UV levels of the Archean Earth's surface, where, of course, we know microorganisms thrived without being destroyed by radiation. And they mentioned that it has, quote, micron-sized sulfuric acid aerosols, which are water droplets containing sulfuric acid dispersed throughout the clouds. Yeah, really, when you, when you think about it, it the, uh, the, the atmosphere of Venus is kind of it's – more, it's more like the surface of, of Earth in many respects, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, or at least what we think but of – But without it. a ground. <laughs> yes, but, it, but really, when you, it, when you think of Earth, though, uh, think of the fact when if you're dealing with the hard surface of Earth – most of the hard surface of Earth is a uh, is a is a, is a cold, lightless desert environment mm-hmm. uh, that is underneath the ocean. That's a very good point. Maybe you should think about the atmosphere of Venus being less like the atmosphere of Earth and more like the waters of the oceans on Earth. Yeah. But anyway, all of this that we've been saying so far is just to the point that it's not impossible that there could be microorganisms living within the clouds in Venus. You know, there there are some favorable conditions. Are there any positive reasons to think that there might be organisms there? Well, this comes back to the unknown UV absorber that we talked about earlier. Right. So there's this thing that we have observed embedded within the Venusian clouds – so LeMay thinks that, yeah, that there could be alien bacteria in the clouds. And, and when we, we're looking at the unknown UV absorber, this could be it. 
So NASA has studied the uh, the unknown UV absorber uh, for some time. Mm-hmm. Basically, we're, we're talking about an atmospheric anomaly yeah. uh, that where we see UV light being absorbed by something. Right. In general, Venus is highly reflective. It's mm-hmm. a bright planet. Like it shines things back out into space when the sun shines on it. And the clouds that surround it reflect a lot of sunlight. But there is this weird, mysterious UV absorption thing creating this contrast within the clouds. There are dark patches and patterns within the reflective clouds. And the question is, well, what could that be? Now, we can say what it, it almost certainly is not. It's mm-hmm. not going to be, say, giant uh, uh, atmospheric uh, uh, like manta rays or anything like that. You know, it's not going to be space whales uh, in the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, But it could potentially be like clouds of microorganisms, like colonies of microorganisms, kind of, uh, you know, not not to exaggerate it too much, but kind of like the krill of Venus, but with no whales coming around to scoop them up. No, that's a very, very good point of comparison, actually. People, in fact, the scientists who worked on this have compared it to the way you would look at algal blooms in mm. bodies of water here on Earth. Uh, that That's a good point of comparison because one of the most interesting things about these dark patches is that they have this kind of shimmering, moving kind of quality to them. Uh, a quote from Lamea, which he gave in a um, – uh, in a press release, as he said, quote, Venus shows some episodic, dark, sulfuric-rich patches, which contrasts up to 30 to 40 percent in the ultraviolet and muted in longer wavelengths. These patches persist for days, changing their shape and contrasts continuously and appear to be scale-dependent. So, yeah, they've got this weird dynamic quality to them, just like a bloom of organisms in ocean water might. Now, I know some of you are probably remembering, well, you said that there are sulfuric acid clouds up there. How is life thriving up there? Well, one of the points uh, that Delamay makes is that, well, if you consider the fact that life on Earth, as we know it, can thrive in acidic conditions, that it can feed on CO2 and produce sulfuric acid, uh, it all lines up with uh, the environments that we, we, we know to exist in the, uh, in the atmosphere of Venus. Yeah. Now, to be clear, we're not saying that this is evidence that there is definitely, you know, life right. in yeah. the clouds of Venus. It's just that there's a lot of interesting evidence that would line up with there being uh, patches of microorganisms in the clouds of Venus that are making their living this way. Now, there, there are other options too. It could be chemical, right? Maybe mm-hmm. you've got patches of sulfur dioxide and iron chloride absorbing UV in the atmosphere. But that doesn't necessarily seem to explain everything we observe, at least not to uh, Lamea and the co-authors. So there are these light-absorbing particles dispersed in clouds, and we don't know for sure what they are. The idea that they're microorganisms is a very elegant and exciting hypothesis, but is there any way we could test this to see if it's true? There is. Uh, and, and we should note, we haven't gotten to test it because anything we've sent through has just has not, it's not had the, uh, the, uh, the equipment or, or it has not spent the necessary amount of time in the atmosphere. Right. But uh, there is one, at least one really awesome proposal for studying the atmosphere of Venus and it involves – Shatner. No. <laughs> it involves vamps. Vamps? Yes. And by vamps, I, I don't mean the space vampires of um, – of uh, our, our favorite Toby Hooper movie. Life Force? Life Force, yes. Oh, 
I thought you were going to say Planet of the Vampires. <laughs> no, uh, it doesn't involve those space vampires either, uh, though that is uh, that is also a good one. Man, I love Planet of the Vampires. They got the best space suits in they that do. movie. They do. They're so stylish. Leather space suits. But this uh, this is pretty stylish too, I think, if, if, you'll, if you'll allow me here to discuss the Venus Atmospheric Maneuverable Platform, or VAMP. Please do, Robert. Which uh, is a proposed uh, Northrop Grumman Planetary Exploration Vehicle. And uh, you should you should look up images of this at home. It looks kind of like a flying wing, uh, which is interesting considering that uh, Northrop Grumman made the original flying wing aircraft, the experimental uh, YB-35 and YB-49, uh, the former with propellers, the, the latter with jets. Uh, from the from the mid to late 1940s. I don't think I know what those are. What are what are they like? Uh, they essentially imagine a big boomerang as mm-hmm. uh, a 1940s bomber, and that's what you have with the YB-35 and the YB-49. So these were military aircraft. Yes, yeah, yeah, they were designed to be big bombers. And uh, Northrop Grumman later came back and did the B-2 Spirit stealth bomber. So uh, if you've seen images of the stealth uh, uh, bomber, mm-hmm. then you have seen a flying wing aircraft. Oh, okay. Yeah, so. They, they really like the idea of a, of a flying wing, and in fact, this the the Vamps concept involves sending one to Venus. So we're talking about a propeller-driven flying wing uh, type uh, craft that's solar-powered and also semi-buoyant. So it's kind of a, a blimp plane hybrid. Uh, uh, but it's a prop plane in Venus. Yeah, right? yeah, it's a prop plane. That's, I, that's I love one, this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love the idea that that one day we could have a propeller-driven vehicle mm-hmm. in the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, it would have about a 180-foot <laughs> or 55-meter wingspan. Uh-huh. Uh, it would fly at a max speed of uh, about 30 meters per second or 67 miles per hour. And that its desired altitude would, would, would be something about 50 to 70 kilometers or 30 to 45 miles above the the hard surface of the planet. All right. So that would put it within access to that nice range that uh, Lamea and colleagues were talking about. Right. Uh, I should also point out that this is what's categorized as a a lifting entry atmospheric flight system or a LEAF system, uh, which has also been proposed for explorations on Mars and Titan. Uh, But uh, here's here's just a, a, a a quote from the uh, material that Northrop Grumman has on the, the VAMP uh, project. The VAMP is, quote, an aeroshellless hypersonic entry vehicle that transitions to a semi-buoyant, maneuverable, solar-powered air vehicle for flight in Venus's atmosphere. So it's an atmospheric rover, and it could last for up to a year uh, in Venus's atmosphere, just flying through the upper and mid-cloud uh, layers, equipped with uh, with with atmospheric sampling equipment, including equipment that could help us uh, determine if there are signs of microbial life within uh, the skies of Venus. Loving this for multiple reasons. <laughs> Number one, I of course always just love good space exploration, uh, and and let's look for life. Come on! But on top of that, since it's a prop plane. I'm imagining it's got to also have a surly mechanic with a big wrench sticking out of the overalls <laughs> that's like working on it. <laughs> yeah, one would imagine. Um, but you know, kind of yellow and sulfur stained, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, I do have to point out that it's very early days still for for Vamp, uh, but it is one of the options. It's very much on the table for future exploration of Venus. I like it, man. Yeah, and until we send something like there, we just we can't say for certain. Uh, when it comes to the question of microbial life uh, in the clouds there. 
Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. No, wait. We don't have to just wait and see. <laughs> we, we can we can publicly encourage space exploration. Come on now. Yeah, yeah. Now, earlier on, we were talking about the possibility of life in Venus. And you, you went a step further and you said, well, what about intelligent life? Now, I know that's kind of hard to imagine because – Let's say according to these predictions based on the papers we've been talking about today, that maybe Venus had oceans for two billion years Mm -hmm. before the runaway greenhouse effect killed all that. We know from experience in the history of the Earth that two billion years of access to oceans is not enough time to evolve complex multicellular organisms with brains and the ability to build civilizations and all that. But let's just imagine things went different there. For some reason, maybe evolution happened faster. We don't know. Um, What would things be like? If, say, you have an intelligent civilization on a planet, maybe at the level of technological achievement that human civilization is at right now, Mm -hmm. and you realize all your scientists tell you, oh, okay, we've got runaway greenhouse effect going on. We've got a couple hundred years before things get intolerable on the surface of this planet. What are you going to do? And I wonder – well, what could be done? I mean, is that just definitely the end for the species or can you somehow try to come up with some sustainable way to retreat to the subterranean realm? Can you get uh, can you get geothermal power? Uh, you know, I don't know, making light bulbs for you to grow plants down there. I, I just like wonder what's possible. How long can you survive on a planet that doesn't want to host life on its surface anymore? Oh, wow. I mean, well, this is this is a a, a wonderful sci-fi question. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in fact, you have some some fairly old works that uh, that kind of explored a bit. The the old uh, William Hope Hodgson book, uh, The Nightlands. Oh, I haven't read that. What oh, is that? It's, it's um it's a tremendous work of early, essentially post-apocalyptic literature, mm-hmm. in which uh, the Earth is uh, is grown dark. It's it's the nightlands now, and there's this place called the Last Redoubt, and so it's a, like a pyramid, an artificial uh, structure created by humans, and it's powered by hydrothermal um, uh, power, mm-hmm. uh, and this is where essentially the last uh, remnants of humanity have. Uh, have have assembled themselves and and tried to sort of hold on to life against the uh, the darkness and the cold. Sounds bleak, Robert. It's pretty bleak. Uh, it's 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 kind of gorgeous in its own way. But well, but we're talking about a bleak concept. Yeah, we're talking that's true. about yeah. a, a, a life form uh, losing its environment and having to uh, adapt to some sort of new take on life, either by retreating into the darkness or finding a way to live up in the clouds. Yeah, and then, of course, this is premised on the idea that if uh, the scientists of Venusian civilization did come to them and say, look, we've only got a couple hundred years before you know it's too hot to live on this planet anymore, would people actually pay attention to them and do anything? Right. It, it would kind of <laughs> depend on what's the lifespan of, uh, of, of the Venusian uh, yeah. beings here. If it's like humans, then if when you tell a human, all right, we need to do something because something bad happens in 200 years, they're going to say, well – I'm not going to be alive for that. Right. What, what's what's happening tomorrow? What's happening uh, uh, the week after next? What's happening maybe next year? Because uh, we as a species don't have a great track record for long-term planning. Right. We can maybe think maybe think into the next generation if we're being uh, generous. Uh, so I, I don't think the human model <laughs> uh, leaves much hope for, uh, for, for what a, a Venusian life form might have accomplished. Yeah, you can imagine there was a lot of, oh, these, you know, runaway greenhouse effect alarmists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or 200 years. Well, the next generation, they'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, the technology will come online and they'll just fix everything. Uh, and while they're all chatting about it, the, the oceans boil away and then they boil away as well. 
but maybe a few are able to crawl down into their crypts, you know, maybe a few are able to, to make it up into their cloud cities. I don't know if you, they can keep the others from, uh, from dragging them out or dragging them back down. I guess this maybe deserves a whole episode someday. We should come back and examine the idea of how long could a, uh, say, an ecosystem be maintained purely in a subterranean existence? Could mm. you go on indefinitely if you had incoming energy sources? Yeah, I love talking about uh, subterranean life, uh, so that would be a great topic to discuss. In the meantime, uh, we thank everybody for joining us on this uh, trip to Venus. And uh, if you if you enjoy this episode, let us know. Let us know uh, what other planets, so what other moons, uh, even you would like us to uh, explore in future episodes. Uh, you can check out all of our past episodes at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find links out to our various social media accounts. And I also want to remind everyone that if you want to support the show, a great way to do it is to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you want to get in touch with us directly to suggest a topic for future episodes, uh, to let us know what you thought about this episode or any other, or just to say hi, let us know who you are, where you listen to the show from, what you like about it, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.